top of that one. Oh, no. There you go. Right. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. Great. So, if you don't know me, the name is Barry. I'm uh, Irish. Well, I'm actually Scottish by birth and Irish by upbringing, confused by nature. Uh, that's, that's more true than you actually think. Uh, I'm married to Geordie, so pray for me. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I do have uh, about half of my family with me this morning. Uh, my wife, Linda, is with me over there. Give this wave, Linda. She doesn't like it. She's over there. <laughs> and then our youngest daughter, Amber, is sitting next to her. And then beside Amber is uh, our youngest granddaughter, Amidala. She's a miracle child, by the way. The doctors told Amber that she couldn't have children. And uh, if I can say this, she won't mind. She was 41 when this was happening. And so I'll just tell this little story now, but I, I probably could use it later on. Uh, she, she cried out to God, having no hope from the medical profession. They'd, they'd offered what they could, which was nothing at that point because she wasn't able to conceive. And she was awakened very early in the morning one morning and heard an audible voice that just said one word to her. And that one word was Isaac. And so we had a chat about that and the meaning of that. And so we agreed together that God was saying something. And to cut a long story short, a year later, Ami arrived. Hallelujah. So the, uh, we really appreciate the medical profession. You'll hear about that in a minute from my other, our other daughter, our eldest daughter. Uh, but uh, sometimes uh, God is our total backup. When nothing else works, God always works. Anyway, so and then I have... Uh, we have our eldest daughter with us this morning, and her name is Zara. And I know that you have—I know that some of you, if not all of you, have been praying for her. So we're really grateful. So I'd like Zara to come out because she's going to just uh, come out and say a few words to you. If that's okay. And then it's downhill from then on in because you, you get me after that. notes I'm not a preacher like my father. I promise not to speak as long as my father. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. um, so um, I don't know how many of you would even know me, not very many of you, but first of all I want to thank everybody who was praying for me last year. I'll try not to get emotional, excuse me. <laughs> um, to breathe. <laughs> right. Uh, I get a bit emotional in churches these days after my year. <laughs> um, so this time last year, um, I was just living my life as normal. And um, we had a nice little trip to uh, see some friends in Norway, which was lovely. And um, while I was there, um, I started to get itchy skin. And I didn't think about it. Hi. <laughs> um, I didn't think uh, much about it. I thought maybe they had um, a different washing powder that maybe my skin reacted to. I'd never had anything like this. But anyway, I thought nothing of it and left it. We came home and I got COVID. So, you know, I was like, well, it must be something to do with COVID, obviously, because everything was to do with COVID. So, um, so I ignored it again, but my skin was really itchy. So 
just carried on. COVID came and went. And um, I thought I'd better ring the doctor and just find out what this is. Maybe they can give me some cream or something. That's all. So I rang my doctor and she said, um, can you go for some blood tests this afternoon? And I said I would. I'd had some um, blood tests earlier on in the year and there was something in there that wasn't quite right, but there was nothing that they were worried about. Um, so it was just one of those things they might look at again at some point, maybe have some more blood tests, which I did. I had some more blood tests in the March and whatever it was in this blood count was, had improved. And I was like, okay, that's nothing to worry about. Anyhow, this day um, came, she said, can you go and get your bloods done? I went to get my bloods done. It was a Tuesday, uh, a Monday afternoon. The next morning, she rang me and said, I'm admitting you to hospital. And um, I didn't quite understand why. I, it felt a bit strange. I felt like a fraud. Like, why would I need to go to hospital? It didn't make any sense. I just had itchy skin. I thought you'd give me some cream. Anyway... So I went up to the Northern General and um, I waited for a bed and they admitted me to um, the ward. Uh, well, I had a, a night in the admissions ward, sleepless night, and uh, then they put me onto this ward. And um, I, I just, it was ridiculous. I thought, what am I doing here? I felt fine. Um, there's no reason for me to be here. Anyway, so they, they decided they wanted to do a few tests, so they gave me an ultrasound and there was nothing there. They thought maybe I had some stones in my gallbladder or something was affecting this the blood issue. Anyhow, cutting that little bit short, it took three or four days, but by the Friday I'd had an MRI, I'd had a CT scan, and the doctor came, the consultant came to see me and said, is your husband coming over? Is your fa have you got family? Is anyone coming to see you this afternoon? And you know at that point that something's not right and I still didn't expect what she was going to say but I knew something wasn't right and I said I think you better tell me what it is because I'm not going to be able to wait for my husband to come you just need to tell me now so she said I had a tumor in my bile duct and liver and it was a cancerous tumor and um, that was it there wasn't a but it's okay because it's only little and we're just going to get it out or, you know, it was, we don't know how long it's been there. I don't know what can be done and that's it. So it was pretty horrible and a shock. And if anyone here has ever had any kind of diagnosis like that, you might know a little bit of how I felt. Um, so it was a big shock and my husband came over and doctor talked to him and um, it was a bank holiday, it was this weekend it was this weekend uh, I went home for the bank holiday weekend because there was nothing they could do at that point um, I um, I went home for the weekend um, and it was very hard as you can imagine and there was lots of tears and lots of confusion and it was my eldest daughter's birthday coming up and um, just had to try and hold it together a little bit. And I knew I was going back in on the Tuesday, um, the following week, uh, because they needed to, I'd started to go yellow, my eyes were going yellow, and, um, and so I had jaundice, and they said that they would have to deal with um, a problem, the problem with the, the things leaking around this area. Anyway, um, so I knew I'd have to go back in. So it was a hard, really hard weekend. Um, and, uh, but obviously, at this point, people started praying for me. 
And I know people here over that year have prayed for me, and I'm very grateful from the bottom of my heart. And um, people all over the world, my dad has good contacts, um, and my, my husband's family also. Um, anyway, we got through the weekend, and on the Tuesday I had to go back in to have a procedure where they put a stent in to um, sort out something or other, and we're going to the medical stuff. And um, that wasn't particularly nice, but it was the initial start. And, and um, I, the thing I'd say at that point was I'd started to feel stronger, and, I, and, I, and it wasn't me that felt stronger. I definitely feel like there was something much more supernatural because this was too big for me to, to deal with. I couldn't, how on earth was I going to tell my children? How, you know, there was just no hope at this stage. But I'd started to feel um, calm and real peace, and that I, I just didn't have to be worried about what was going to happen. Um, we, so I was in the hospital for a week and a half at that stage, and I met the Sheffield surgeon there, who was lovely. And um, we talked about it, and he, he said, you know, I think you've had this for a while. Um, it's not some little thing that's easily dealt with, and that you have to discuss it with the surgeons in Sheffield. I still felt fine. Supernaturally, there was definitely something, everybody praying, something had happened that I definitely felt at peace. Anyway, I then had a second meeting with the surgeon, and he told me that Sheffield surgeons had said that they wouldn't be able to operate. Um, he'd, already, he'd already said it would be 50-50 whether they could operate, um, but that they had said they wouldn't. I didn't feel any panic at that stage, and I would have expected to in my normal life. I would have definitely been a bit flustered and worried, but I, just, I definitely just felt, no, it's, it's okay. It's going to be okay. This is, it's fine. So I was still recovering at that stage in the hospital from the stent being um, placed in my body. And um, I, I started to recover a little bit from that. And I had another meeting the next week, the surgeon again. And he said, um, I want to refer you to my, my colleague who I've worked with in Leeds. I want them to, to see you. I want them to see if they can do something for you. That was a real answer to prayer. There was this glimmer of hope that something could or might be able to happen. So I was referred to Leeds, St. James's. And I got an appointment quite quickly. I know lots of people have waited for things in the NHS and there's lots of queues and waiting lists, but um, fortunately in this area, it, there wasn't a long waiting time. So I was able to see someone really quickly within a couple of weeks in Leeds. And that was like my first answer to prayer in a way that that had happened. I started getting lots of words and pictures from people. Um, my dad had had some verses had come to him, like uh, coming from John 4, where it says about your son will live. He had felt strongly that he was having a word that your daughter will live. And another one that I think you came with, Dad, was, I shall not die but live and see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living and recount the deeds, which is why I'm here now, because I'm telling you what has happened to me. Um, so I, I went to see the, the um, surgeon in Leeds, and um, they had said that they, they would operate. They explained all the scary details and all the risks, and they didn't know whether it would work, but that they would do it. So this was another answer to prayer. And they said it'd be a few weeks, but then I got a, 
a date of two weeks later, which was incredible because it was just so fast. Um, then I had two weeks at home, just um, I just threw myself into reading the right stuff and being with the right people. And, um, uh, and there was a few things that happened. Lots of people had had words that I was in large hands or God was holding me and what have you. Um, but I had a particular one that I think I needed and I think God maybe knew I needed. And there was a Sunday morning and I was, I was lying in my bed and uh, I had my arms out and I was listening to worship music and I, I was just having a conversation with God. And um, I had an overwhelming feeling of, or I don't know if it was a picture or a feeling or an experience, but I felt that um, I was a little girl again and Jesus was picking me up, literally picking me up. So, and that was a lovely feeling, lovely experience, and that might have been enough, but some might say, well, that's just how you felt, and it could be, you know, coincidence. I went to church that morning, and a friend of mine took me to the leader of our church and um, to pray for me, and he put oil on my head, which is, for those who don't know, a bit strange if you don't know about that. I did that. They did that in the Bible. Um, he did that, and he said at the end of praying for me, he said, so I've got a really strong image of a little girl and a man coming along and picking her up. And I said, that's just two hours ago, I'd had that same experience in my bed. And it was like, God was saying, you see, I am talking to you. This is not just coincidence. I am involved, you know. And that was really encouraging for me. Um, so at this point, I felt like I had lots of answers to prayer. They were going to operate. It was only in two weeks' time. Um, I had this totally peaceful, calm feeling in something that was really scary. And I'd had lots of words of encouragement from people. Um, I felt like uh, I, I knew that there was only a few things I could do. And if I was going to obey God, I just had to believe that I was already healed and have no fear, which is just mentioned so many times in the Bible, which is hard when you're fearful. Um, and just keep my eyes on him. And that's all I could do. That, I really was to the point where that's all I could do at this stage. I had no more power. Um, we, my husband and I started, um, I'd read a little bit, um, I'd read a few things actually, a couple of things that are worth knowing if you ever have these experiences. I'd read um, some, uh, a book by Dodie Austin in the States who was healed miraculously from liver cancer. Um, that she didn't have any operations, she just was healed. But the one thing she did do was she believed she was healed. And from that day forward, she stuck with that and the, the cancer did go. Um, I had this opportunity to have an operation, which was a wonderful thing, but there was still no sure outcome. Um, anyway, so we, uh, I also read something um, by Derek Prince, who had been healed by a skin condition um, without even believing in God. He was um, in an army barracks was during World War II, and he was in a hospital bed for a long time, and he just started reading the Bible and believing that, this, that he could be healed, and he was also healed. So things like this were helping me. But I also was reading um, Joseph Prince and, um, uh, and looking into communion, and um, I had always known about communion. You go and take a piece of bread, and you drink some wine, and it's all about being forgiven, and, and it is all about being forgiven, but it's also um, the other part of that is that it's all about he, his body was broken so that our body is not broken, and that the day he did that was the day he already said he would heal, he would heal us, 
And uh, my husband and I started taking communion every night. I'd read the little passage about, I believe I'm healed and you died for me for this reason. And so threw myself into it all, 100%. <laughs> but I did feel like he, God was telling me he was there. Anyway, then I had my operation. Then, then I just kept seeing, that was the, you know, all these things were little things that just kept, prayers that kept being answered. So on the day of my operation, I had to be there. Um, it was the 7th of June last year, and I had to be there at 7 o'clock in the morning. And um, they, I don't know if you've experienced this, those who work in the NHS will know that if you're going to have an operation, they have to have a bed ready for you um, in order to continue with the operation. So you're there waiting in this little room, and if there isn't a bed, you won't have the operation. Um, anyway, there was a bed, so another answer to prayer. There was going to be a bed, and um, I went to the operation. It was seven hours long, and um, the surgeons did an amazing job, and I'm forever grateful that I feel God put them in the right place at the right time just for me that day. And I had the operation, and lo and behold, after the operation, there wasn't a bed available. It was just available for the right time that I needed it in the morning so they could do it. So I had to spend a night in a different ward. Um, but they came, and I woke up, and he said that we've got it all out. And, um, yeah, which was pretty amazing. <laughs> um, I was quite sick. Then I stayed in hospital for about three weeks. It took time for me to recover. spent a lot of time in my bed looking out of a window, listening to worship songs, and just having conversations with God. But all the whole time was this overwhelming feeling of him being with me, um, and the prayers that were going up from people here, from people all over the world, were really important. You know, I had people praying on the phone to me and all sorts, and um, it was really encouraging. Um, I'll just see if there was anything else I wanted to tell you about it before I go. Um, I don't think so. I just, I suppose, so while I was in the hospital, um, my dad reminded me, but I, I remember feeling a sense of when I'm healed, not if, when I'm healed, I will tell people about it. So I'm just here as a mere human being telling you my experience. But um, I can wholeheartedly say that um, along with amazing surgeons that he put in the right place at the right time, who have even left now. One the surgeon has gone to the States to work, but he was here when I needed him. And um, I, I do really believe that God has um, changed my life and saved me. Here ended the lesson. <laughs> um, wonderful. We are so thrilled. It was a year, as she said, it was a year ago on Friday that she was diagnosed. So this is the first time she's told her story. So there's going to be many more of those. I've got a couple of books I need to flog you. More mundane advertising. Um, Samson's Hair is Growing Again. This is autobiographical. It charts uh, my upbringing, the things that negatively affected my growing up years, my very crazy, drug-fueled, rock-and-roll singer-in-a-band days in Dublin, which colourful to say the least, and then how God wonderfully chased me from Ireland to Guernsey to Holland to save me, and then uh, took us on a wonderful uh, adventure of serving him in Holland and in India where we met Jeff and Pauline, and they are the reason we actually ended up in Sheffield, apart from God doing it, but... <laughs> 
that's the reason why a lot of people ended up in Sheffield. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and becoming very successful in ministry, very successful. Uh, and then at the height of success, I crashed and burned. Uh, it was a terrible sense of my failure, letting God down. I was desperately uh, broken and suicidal. And I felt I was on the scrap heap that God could never use me anymore, that uh, I'd failed him and I was worthless and not fit for purpose. But you know, the amazing thing is in the midst of that darkness and that despair, I discovered that Samson's hair grows again and that you can never out-sin the grace of God, that you can never go far enough away from God that he won't find you and bring you back and not only bring you back, but restore what the locusts have eaten. So that's called Samson's hair is growing again. If anybody needs to be encouraged, that's the book to read. And then this is my second book, which... Uh, is called Free Love, But It Isn't Cheap. It's, it gives a hint to my hippie background days, but really, I, I grew up in, in Northern Ireland, which is such a religious culture, where uh, you get saved by grace, but you live under law. And that's just the way it is, and unfortunately, it filters into the church in a whole lot of places that you think it's wonderful, the next thing you've got all these rules you've got to keep, and, and you get under a whole lot of condemnation, and it's very subtle at times, and it's not, it is not the gospel. No. And this is my feeble attempt at trying to explain the radical nature of grace. I, I mentioned this to you before uh, when I was preaching that. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on Romans said, unless we are preaching the gospel of grace to the point that we are misunderstood, we're not really preaching the gospel of grace. It is so radical. It is so outrageous. It'll take you way out beyond your legalistic comfort zones, which is wonderful. So this book will hopefully open up your eyes. Does anybody have a birthday today, this week? Cheryl. Cheryl. Have you, you've got this one, I think, because Alan's read it. You've got... <laughs> okay. Anybody else got a... Take an extra one, I'll give it to you. You've got a birthday. Who, somebody else, did somebody else raise their hand over here? Just one. Which one? Is it... A, you want that one? Right. Have we got a volunteer? Okay, would you pass that back to him? Thank you. Okay, good, good. That's the freebies over. It's hard work after it. I've got five minutes. <coughs> Let's turn our Bibles to John chapter 20. <coughs> I want to read to you from John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Father, we just thank you for your word. 
It's living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. I just pray that it will do its job. Show me what to say. Show me how to say it, Lord Jesus, so that you're glorified and we are blessed. I ask it in Jesus' name. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. I love this passage of Scripture. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture because it speaks to me so powerfully. The story is after Jesus has gone to the cross, died on the cross. For those of you not familiar with that story, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. All you have to do is accept that he took your place so you can take his place. And you can then have a wonderful, enjoyable, crazy, adventurous life like I do have in Jesus Christ. Yeah. So that, that's, that's what the gospel is all about. It's the gospel of the kingdom. It's not the gospel of the church. It's the yes. gospel of the kingdom that he came to set people free yes. to live life to the full. He said, he said this. Now, we need to get this, church. John 10, 10. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So if you're not having abundant life yet, you're not enjoying the grace of God, <laughs> quite frankly. So read the book. Okay, <laughs> salesman to the end. Salesman. Yeah, you got it. So... So here we have this, this amazing event took place a few, uh, uh, just three days before. Jesus dies on the cross, but all the disciples, they desert him. They run away in fear for their own lives. And Peter, he denies him three times, publicly swearing, saying, I don't know this man, I've, I've never heard of him. And so that's, that's the major event that took place on good or bad Friday, whichever way you want, it was, was, was good for us and bad for Jesus. And so now we have something amazing happen. Now we have Jesus has risen from the dead. Now that's not a fantasy. He has risen. He is risen. That's the truth. And just, to, it's, 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 it's an undeniable fact, you know. It's, it's the crux of our belief. And even, you know, not only did the disciples see him, not only did the women see him when he rose from the dead, but over 500 people saw him at one time, this risen Lord Jesus, with a body that was resurrected but had scars in his hands, in his side, and his feet. So, I mean, it's not a fantasy, it's a truth. And this is, this is, what, this is the foundation of what we believe, that we serve a living God. Not some God, not some prophet in a tomb somewhere rotting away into nothing. But we have a living Savior who is present. And this is what happens on this day. In the midst of, uh, of, of the, the, the heaviness that, that is in this upper room where these disciples have, have hidden, because it's for fear of the Jews. They're scared. They're ashamed. They're guilty. Ever been there? Ever felt scared, ashamed, and guilty? It's called sin. It gets you that way sometimes. It's, you know, sin looks like a lot of fun until it gets hold of you. Then it begins to destroy you. That's the problem with it. It's not real fun at the end of the day. And I know what real fun is. I've lived a life that some people only dreamed of. Negatively. But I know what it's like to go from darkness to light. Because I know what it's like when Jesus rescues you. I was on a singer in a rock band taking LSDs. Smoking dope, taking uppers, downers, inners, outers, everything you could take. I didn't know what day I was in. It didn't matter until I had a very bad trip one day. If you don't know what that means, is I took an hallucinogenic drug that freaked my brains out. And I began, it made me start to ask questions. And the questions were two simple questions. Who am I? What's the meaning of my life? And I began, that was in Dublin. And I wandered back to the north of Ireland and went to a seaside town where I used to hang out. And, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a complete, my brains are fried, you know, to crispy. 
tried to crispate, really, <laughs> if I had any left. And I'm walking down the street, and my hair's down to here, and they're like curtains, so nobody can see me. I'm walking with my head down. Jeff remembers seeing me like that <clears throat> a long time ago. Uh, my hair was hanging down, and I'm walking down, and these two old ladies stopped me on the street. They may have been only in their 40s, but they looked old to me. <laughs> Anybody over 20 was really old to me. And they gave me a little leaflet. Now, I didn't know what it was, if I'd realized, because I used to avoid Christians like the plague, because they were so condemning, so negative, so miserable. I mean, this, you know, it's, I said it's, some Christians, you know, when they go to church, it looks like they've been going to the dentist, because they go, miserable. You know, that's not what it's about. And so, anyway, I got these this leaflet, and I began to read it. And as I'm reading it, I thought, you know, I went to Sunday school as a boy. My mother was a believer. I went to Sunday school as a boy, and I, I loved the stories about Jesus in Sunday school. Then I went to the Church of Ireland, actually. It was, oh, it was heavy. It was heavy. And the guy wore this, you know, this long dress, smoking handbag. <laughs> you know, he, he looked like he was dead from the neck up. I, it was really terrible. I, the, only, the only thing that is, is, is of, a mem, of a memory of me in that church is that I, with my pen, I've etched my initials in the back seat of the balcony, and that's probably there to this day. But it was, it was the most horrendous, and I, let, I was, had enough, didn't want to know. But, but there was something about, captivated me about this leaflet, but I didn't understand it. And as I walked down the street, I, I asked myself this, this, I had this thought, shall I say, I had a friend that I used to hang out with, and I heard he'd become a born-again Christian. I didn't know what that meant. And, and his name was Ernie. <laughs> no, he didn't drive the fastest milk cart in the West. No, that was his cousin. And, and so I'm, I'm walking down the street, and I'm thinking to myself, if I could only bump into Ernie... Maybe he could explain to me what this is all about. Well, I no, long, no sooner had that thought than I heard this voice call my name. I looked across the street. Guess who was across the street? It was the milkman. It was Ernie. Yeah, there he was with his, another guy that I knew. And they called me over. And they started chatting to me. And then they said, oh, we're going to an open-air meeting. You know, it's where they, this was in a promenade on Newcastle County Down. Beautiful place. I'm advertising now. Mountains of Moran Street down to the sea. Wonderful. <clears throat> and so they said, do you want to come along? And I said to my surprise, yes. So here I am. My hair's down to here. I've got earrings in. I've got beads on. I've got scruffy denim jeans on. I've got sandals on and beads around my ankles. And they take me to this religious meeting. And they're all in suits and ties. Because that's, that's, that's how you know they're Christians. <laughs> they're wearing suits and ties, you know. <clears throat> God, forgive me. <clears throat> I didn't understand the word. This preacher was really passionate. He was really passionate. Oh, he was preaching his heart out, and he was preaching so hard his false teeth fell out onto the ground. <laughs> I, I tell you not, I thought it was the funniest thing I had ever seen. And I thought, this, I, I like this. This is fun. And to his credit, to his credit, he went over, picked up his false teeth, wiped them down, stuck them back in his mouth, and kept on preaching. Now, that's... that's that's passion. That is passion. I'm telling you. So after a while in Northern Ireland, I, I decided I needed to go. I, I used to, I, I'd lived in Guernsey before uh, I got into the rock band, the second rock band, heavy rock band, <coughs> drug rock band. 
So I decided to go back to Guernsey because I really needed to turn off, tune in, and drop out because my brains needed some refreshment. So I went, went back to Guernsey, was hanging out. I got some hippie friends there. I'm trying to do this fast because I've run out of time already. Uh, um, one day I went into my friend's hippie shop and uh, there, was, uh, there were some nice hippie clothes on the shelves and I was looking through them and I saw, saw this little card stuck in between the shirts and I pulled it out. And some Christian SAS agent had been in there <laughs> and he'd stuck a card in to invite people to a Christian coffee bar. I thought, well, go to this man. Cool, you know what? I was, my brain was so open, I was on a spiritual quest. I mean, I had no idea what... I used to, Listen, this, I, someone a few years earlier, God was on my case for a long time before he got hold of me. I was, I was hard to catch. <clears throat> He'd give me, this guy would give me a King James Bible. See, I was so confused. I was so confused. I used to sit in my flat in Guernsey, and I'd read the King James Bible, and I'd smoke dope, and I'd listen to Hare Krishna music. Now, you, you talk about being confused, you know? But God can still catch you when you're like that. And I used to wear a placard around my neck that said, boy, am I confused. I did, yeah, yeah. yeah. Somebody said, you don't spell confused with a K. And I said, you don't know how confused I am, you know? This, this, this is who I am. I'm really confused. But the thing was, when Jesus is on your case, he never gives up. You can never go so far away that he can't get you. So um, I, I went to the coffee bar. I met a guy called Steve. He was cool. He was wearing Levi jeans and big sideboards. I thought, this is okay. This, this is okay. And he was the most wonderfully gracious, loving man I'd ever met in my whole experience of Christians. Yeah, I'm sure you're all wonderful, loving, and kind, but I'd never met them up until this point. I'd only met those heavy dudes in the suits who told you what you couldn't do and how bad you were, you know? You know, it was all hellfire and brimstone. None of that. This was love and grace. And I was attracted to it. You see, Jesus is attractive. Religion is abhorrent. I hate religion. And Karl Marx was right, by the way. It is the opiate of the people. But he said it for different reasons. And it, does, it, it is a drug of religion. It kills you. It does kill you. But Jesus sets you free. I'm probably not going to preach my message this morning. <laughs> So, you know, I went, I, 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 I went to that coffee bar. I met Steve, hung out with him for a long time. And then something amazing happened. I fell in love. Hey. I met my wife, Linda. We were working in the same hotel. I was a kitchen porter. And she was a chambermaid. And we fell, fell in love across the hot plate. <laughs> hot stuff, baby. <laughs> and we got married in that little mission hall that this friend of ours, Steve, uh, worked in. And then we had our eldest daughter, Zara. And then one day, um, I, was, I, I, I had a car, had an MG 1100. I loved it, loved my MG 1100. You could only do 30 miles an hour in Guernsey. That's as fast as you were supposed to go. Anyway, I'm going to work one morning, and I, I go past uh, this guy who's walking down the road. And, and for some reason, I understand the la language to explain it now, but I didn't then. I felt a strong impression uh, that there's something about this guy. And I pulled in to get petrol. He walked past. As I pulled out, I felt I should stop and ask him if he wanted to get, have a lift to wherever he was going. Turns out he was Dutch. He'd just arrived in Guernsey that morning. He had a job. I took him there. We became friends. We smoked dope together and all that stuff. And then he said he, after three months he was going back to Holland. He said, why don't you come and live in Holland? It's easy to get dope. I thought, I thought that was a good idea, you know. <coughs> 
So I told Linda, I, I, I've learned a lot since that. I, I now ask her. <laughs> wisdom, wisdom. <clears throat> and so we decided we were going to go to Holland. And I thought, this is going to be great. I can just go into any bar and score some dope. And, you know, I'll be as high as a kite. Life will be wonderful. I didn't take LSD anymore. I didn't want to touch that. But, you know, dope was okay. So I, I thought that was good. And then before we were leaving, our, my Christian friend Steve with the sideboards and Levi jeans, he came to visit us. We were living in a hippie commune house. And uh, he said, well, you know, I met a Christian. I met a Christian businessman a year ago in Guernsey. He came to visit for the weekend. We exchanged addresses. I don't know where you're going. He's from Holland. And I don't know where you're going. But uh, maybe when you get there, he might be able to help you. And I said, far out, man, you know, I think something like that. <laughs> and so I, 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 uh, I took the address. And you see, I told him that we were going to live in the city of Harlem in, uh, in Holland. And he said, well, the address I've got not, is not Harlem. It's a place called Bloemendal. If, if you've been around a long time, you know that's where Corrie ten Boom actually hung out uh, and lived for a while. Anyway, and I, but I realized that, you see, I said I was going to Harlem, but my hippie friend lived in Bloemendal, only five minutes away from the Christian guy. So to cut a long story short, <laughs> I went there for drugs, but Jesus arrested me on the streets of Harlem. In fact, this guy, this businessman, became uh, my best friend. And after about uh, two weeks, uh, I was under such serious conviction. I need to give my life to Jesus. I need to give my life to Jesus. And uh, one day I just said to him, Franz, I just need to give in. I need to give in. I need to, Jesus wants me for his kingdom. <laughs> I, and I got to give in. And so he just stopped the car on the way back to our house. And he said, you pray in English and I'll pray in, pray in Dutch. And that's what happened. And I literally, I literally felt the weight of all my mess roll off my back. I literally. <laughs> Apart from marrying Linda, that's the best decision I ever made in my life. And I've never regretted it. It's uh, 49 years, I think, I've lost count. <laughs> so old, so old. <laughs> Linda says I'm still only 15. That's a different story. I just want to say, you know, that Maybe today you're like one of these disciples in the upper room. You're filled with guilt. You're filled with insecurity. You're filled with shame. You're filled with fear. And I want you to, if I can do this, I want you to know that when Jesus walked into that upper room, he just, you know, he went, da-da, because he didn't have to open the door anymore because he had a glorified body. And he stepped through the door. He didn't open the door. He stepped through the door. And if you had been Jesus, if you had been Jesus, what would have been the first thing you would have said to those guys who had run away when you needed help, who had denied you and were a bunch of awful cowards? What would you have said to them? Just a word in love, brother? You know? First of all, it's not just a word and it's never in love. But what I think is absolutely fascinating Jesus doesn't mention their sin at all. You think maybe we've got the gospel the wrong way around? To these bunch of failures, to these bunch of sinners, quote unquote, Jesus said, he said it twice to them. He said, peace be with you. You see, for, for, for him it was like, 
nothing had happened. Isn't that fantastic? Sometimes you go to church and they want you to walk on broken glass for six months before you're saved. Jesus just says, peace be with you. Because I'll tell you why. He knew what the condition of their hearts were. He knew that a bruised reed he would not break and a smoking flax he wouldn't snuff out. When he sees the condition of your heart, when there's a brokenness in your heart over what's wrong in your life, he doesn't want to wallow with you in that. He wants to set you free from that. Remember, life abundantly. That's the gospel. And so Jesus comes in. And this is my first point. I've only got 25 more. (laughs) That was just the introduction. (laughs) My first point is that Jesus' ministry is a ministry of restoration, not condemnation. If you ever go to a church and they condemn you, don't ever go back. And you can tell them I said you. You can not to do that. Okay? That's why I love this church. So full of life and liberty and love. And so he brings his restoration. He says, peace be with you. And the first time he says, peace be with you, is to set them free from their history. You see, you can't go forward in his purposes unless you've been freed from your history. And Jesus went on the cross to set us free from our history. It's the divine exchange. He took our place so we could take his place. He took the rap on the cross so we could walk in the freedom of just like Jesus. It's almost too good to be true. But that's why Martin Lloyd-Jones says, unless we're preaching the gospel of grace, it's the point that we're being misunderstood. We're not really preaching the gospel of grace. And I'll tell you this straight away in case you think, oh, this is just cheap grace, cheap gospel. No, uh, I think sin is horrendous. I think it's awful because it's so destructive. But if you fall in love with Jesus, then you'll be highly motivated not to sin. You see, what the law can't do, love can do. See, we love, 1 John 4 says, we love because he first loved us. And our love is a reciprocal act to him. And it's like when you fall in love. You know when you fall in love, it's like your brain is the most sophisticated computer in the universe. Runs perfectly 24-7, 365, for years and years and years and years and years until you fall in love. And then you start buying flowers, don't you guys, you know? (laughs) Flowers, you can't eat flowers. Why do you buy flowers? Because you've fallen in love. And all you want to do when you fall in love is please the one you love. You see, so that's why grace is so powerful. Because it's the greatest motivation for you to do the things that are right. Not because you ought to, have to, must to. You're going to get beat over the head by some celestial Scrooge if you don't. No, but because you want to. You'll still screw up every now and again because none of us is perfect. I remember the guy who mentored me in my early years, Floyd McClung. Jeff and Pauline knew Floyd. And Floyd was preaching in a meeting. He said, you know, we've all fallen short. And one guy said, I've never sinned. (laughs) He was brave, wasn't he? Or or, or a nutcase, wasn't it? He said, I've never sinned. And Floyd said to him, I'm sure you must be very proud of that. (laughs) And the guy said, yes, Sam. He said, well, there you have committed your first sin. (laughs) See, we've all fallen short. I love what, uh, I think it was something Ian said or you said. Paul said it in, In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we no longer see people after the flesh. 
We no longer look at people in the natural. We see them with the potential that God has put in them. Because even if you don't know the Lord, you know, before you were born, when you were in your mother's womb, he created the DNA that's in you that only finds fulfillment in him. So the first time he says peace is for their history, and then later on in the text he says peace again. That's to set them free to fulfill their God-ordained destiny. Somebody trying to speak to me. And so the restoration of the Lord is so powerful and so positive. Don't, he is not counting your sin against you. He is not remembering your sin against you. I'm so thankful. I've got a lot to be thankful for. Yes, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. If you read my book, you'll understand. I know what it's like to screw up big time and publicly. For you're so guilty and so ashamed of your life. And yet he came and he found me. He came and he found me at my lowest point. And he said, it's not over yet, Barry. It's not over until I say so. There's a lot more to be done. In fact, God sent me to earth to do a certain number of jobs. I'm so far behind. It's going to be a long time before I get to heaven. I'm quite happy about that right now. But you see, people will give up on you. Institutions will give up on you. Religion will certainly give up on you, but Jesus will never give up on you. He's always there. And so he brings his restoration to these bunch of nerdy wells. And I wonder if you need restoration this morning. I wonder if you feel like you're like one of these. This is just the first. There's another three points, but I won't do them this morning. I'll come back if I'm allowed. I wonder if you feel like, like the disciples this morning. You feel ashamed. You feel guilty. You feel fearful. You feel God's God couldn't use me anymore. I've I've gone too far. I've messed up too much. Or or maybe in some religious circles they say, Well, we'll let you in, but you can't do anything anymore. You're just gonna sit on the shelf for the rest of your special that's not the kingdom of God. That's not the heart of Jesus. When he restores, he restores wholly, fully, and quickly. How was it how long was it from the point where Peter denied Jesus till he was preaching and saving, seeing 3,000 people saved. 50 days, roughly? See, something about five years before you can do anything. No, it's not the gospel. It's not the kingdom. It's religion, and it stinks because it's dead. But Jesus is here this morning to restore you. He's here to make you whole. He's here to give you your life back. He said, I have come that you might have life and have it in abundance, joyful, adventurous. Linda said when she married me, she wanted her life to be a carousel, but instead she got a roller coaster. (laughs) You see, that's the kind of life Jesus has for us. It's like Abraham, he went out not knowing where he was going. 
But God knew where he was going. And God will lead you all the way if you'll trust him. If you'll lay it all down before him and say, here's the mess. Can you make it a message? Can you do something with this? And he can. And he did. And he does. And he wants that for you this morning. I'm so excited to be here today because I've got my kids and my wife. Well, I've got half of the family. The other half are in other parts of the world. But I'm so thrilled that my daughter Zara was her healing testimony and how God blessed her. And I'm so thrilled that I have my youngest daughter Amber and the miracle child that was impossible. God's a God of the impossible. I don't know what miracle you need this morning. <clears throat> but he's here. The presence of the Lord is here. And he wants to meet you. He wants to restore you. He wants to fill you and strengthen you so you can be fit for purpose. Fulfill your destiny. It's not over till he says it's over. Thank you, sweetheart. Do you, want to, do you want to say hello? Hello. Say hello. Just turn around and say hello. This is my girl. Okay. You want to go see your mama? Okay. Go on. Yeah, it's okay. Fine. Yeah, yeah. Go I'm going. I think the Lord's speaking to me. But you know, the Holy Spirit is here. Yes. It says in uh, 2 Corinthians 6.16, he, <clears throat> he lives in us and he moves amongst us. That's the New Revised Standard Version translation, which is the correct way of saying, not only does he live in you personally, but corporately he moves amongst you. And he's moving amongst us this morning because he wants to touch us. He wants to refresh us. He wants to renew us. So would you just stand, please, as we close? <clears throat> So I just want to pray over you and then see what the Lord wants to do. Father, I just thank you for your presence. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're here. I know that your word says, Father God, that when two or three are gathered together, you're in the midst of us. So we want to actively and intentionally receive that truth that you're here, Holy Spirit, and you're moving amongst us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that your hand of love and grace and healing We'll just reach out and touch each one here this morning. Father, in the name of Jesus, I just pray for your blessing and your favor. I pray for those who feel like they've been like Peter, that they've walked away and their hearts have denied him. I just pray, Father God, that your restoration touch them right now in Jesus' name. I pray, Father God, for your healing anointing. Yes. Let healing flow, Lord Jesus. Let healing flow into those who need healing this morning. Lord, you're the miracle worker. You're the healer. We are your servants. And we just pray, I just pray now for that healing blessing, that, that touch of love that changes our lives to flow into each heart this morning in Jesus' name. Come Holy Spirit, just flow and touch and bless. 
just restore the prodigal son this morning. Yes. I believe there's someone here who's a prodigal son. The amazing thing about the prodigal son is this, that when the, he returned, the father never even mentioned the wasting of the inheritance. That's how much he loves you. So come home this morning. So Father, I thank you right now. Let your blessing flow in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. So I just want to say this as with meetings officially closed. Now, if you want prayer for anything, please just come down and speak at the front. I'll be happy to share, pray with you, whatever. Okay, God bless you. Stay here. I've just brought some oil because uh, I just feel today there is... just as anointing for healing this morning. And I want Barry and some other people to pray with you, if you feel you need prayer. But also some of these other things that have been said today. This is your opportunity to come home. And know that you'll be accepted. And know that you'll be, you don't need to be ashamed. You don't need to feel guilty. You just need to come. We've had a message throughout this whole service, stories about throughout this whole service about God's grace activity in our life. Chris is going to come and lead us in a song. But if you want prayer this morning, we, um, we, will, we will pray for you. Okay? And others. Bless you. Hang around, mate. So,